You have now tapped in with the introspective father and son duo. Last name may be strange, but never strange to the game. Adjust the listening devices and keep it locked. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, coming in, yeah. Flex, I just wanna win, yeah. LABB, who we running with, yeah. Two, two, three, three, I'm on 10 again. Hello, and welcome to another installment of No Strangers to the Game. As always, I'm Ja, and that's Troy. Um, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the inequities of sports, whether it be between men and women's sports, um, you know, collegiate sports, some of the things we've seen in the past, you know, few weeks, um, and sports, professional sports around the world in general. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, I guess we can kind of do a little bit of catch up um, and just kind of talk about this past week or things we've got going on. Um, things we may be excited about. So if you want to lead us off, let us know what's going on right now. Uh, that's a whole lot going on. <laughs> Just uh, between family life and work um, and just kind of trying to figure out my next move. Mm. So it's a lot happening. I'm taking a class too on uh, economic development finance. So doing that and, um, you know, we're getting ready for take a trip next week leaving on the 5th and so we'll be in the Virginia DC area hanging out with Atia for about a week so um, just trying to make sure everything is in, in, in order to paint the trip make sure the home is good um, Malia is be heading out as well so she'll be on her own trip headed to the ATL so <laughs> she's excited so making sure she's good to go they leave actually um, when do they leave? They leave in a few days. So, um, so it's a lot just trying to balance out and make sure that, you know, we're good to go when we leave and come back to some sense of order. Um, and this work projects still doing those. And, um, and that's about it. You know, just trying to keep everything afloat right now. What about you? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think, um, I'm nearing that kind of point where things are about to get a little hectic. We had our first meet, uh, was it like two weeks ago? Not this past weekend, but the weekend before. Um, good opener, we were in San Antonio. Um, but now we have about, we took about two weeks off. Um, and then we got a, a pretty grueling stretch of traveling to three different states. We're going to Arizona, Texas, and Oklahoma. Um, and then we'll be doing that week to week. So it'll be an interesting couple of three weeks here. Uh, things are going good. Um, been starting to do a little bit of interviewing with some NBA teams, uh, just about some entry level positions and things like that. And so that's pretty exciting, a little nerve wracking and having to schedule all those meetings and things like that. But I guess that's a good problem to have thus far. So what teams? <laughs> um, what teams have we got? We've got Phoenix, Denver, Memphis. Um, oh, boy, I'm trying to remember. It's about five teams, though. See, I can't even remember all of them. Atlanta, Atlanta Hawks. So, um, yeah, so a few, quite a few teams have been, you know, hitting me up and interested in things like that. And so that's, that's, that's been pretty good. But today's topic, things that I want to get into is inequities in sports. As a track and field athlete, track and field does not get much love, whether it be on the collegiate level as well as a professional level, at least not in the U.S. In, the Europe, in Europe and other parts of the world, people actually really love track and field. But in the U.S., you know, it's football. Football's king. Basketball's, you know, making a pretty good run at them for second. 
Um, baseball's probably in third, and then you got a bunch of other sports fighting for, you know, that fourth spot. I think maybe hockey, uh, I don't know, tennis, I don't know. But track and field is not one of those top sports. We do not get love in the U.S. And so this is kind of something that I guess is near and dear to my heart as a track and field athlete. Um, it's something that I want to discuss. What made me think of this topic was this past, was it two weeks, they've been having the NCAA tournaments for the men and women's basketball for the NCAA. Um, and there was a video that went pretty viral of an Oregon women's basketball player showing their weight room and their, some of their amenities that they got in their hotels and, you know, some of the gifts they got for making the tournament versus what the men got. And the men's was a lot more lavish. Their weight room was a lot, you know, nicer. They had a lot more, um, things going on. They got a lot more gifts and stuff like that. And so that was kind of like, you know, I think a wake up call for a lot of people who didn't know that this is, this exists, this inequity between not only men and women's sports within the NCAA, but other sports and so on and so forth. And so I wanted to ask you about it. You were an NCAA athlete. How do you, what do you feel about, you know, that kind of, I guess people waking up to that. And now see, to point it out, I want to mention this. You were a football player. So you was on, you got the, if you did, you got the best part of that as opposed to other sports like track and field and, you know, some of the smaller non-revenue sports. Yeah, I, you know, I have mixed feelings on it. On one hand, I look at it, you know, we're in a capitalist structured society. So whoever generating the revenue, whoever's making the money is going to be paid. They're going to get the, the more, you know, all the amenities. They're going to get what they need and what they demand. On the other hand, particularly when you think about college women's basketball and men's basketball, particularly when you're talking about little goodies and snacks and stuff like that, I'm like, come on, the NCAA can be equitable in that regard. You know, that's a little petty. On other things, even in the sports themselves, for instance, football and basketball, which are the revenue sports versus track and field, um, they generate the revenue. You know, they generate the revenue to support the other sports. So it's hard to be mad at them about it, you know? So if our system is a capitalistic system, then that's how we function. Yeah. So if we're gonna change that, then we can argue that we need to be more equitable in that regard. But if it's strictly capital and we're gonna let the market dictate what happens, then it's hard to argue against that. So I see both sides of it. I'm hoping that we can fix our system to be a little more equitable and just in those regards because you know the 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 big dogs eat well and the little the little cats you know they have to struggle and you know it's a lot it's a lot it's enough to go around and i think we need to figure out a better way of distributing and disseminating the the goods and the resources in a way that is a bit a bit more equitable and fair yeah and i think the point that you made that i was really that really resonated with me was the idea of just the simple things, right? Like the little gifts, the little knickknacks you get for making an NCAA championship, you know, that can be kind of consistent across the board. I get it. Football and basketball, they're making in the money. You know, this NCAA tournament, at least the men's, is bringing in over a billion dollars in TV revenue. You know what I mean? That's, that's something that track and field just isn't doing. Women's basketball just isn't doing. But when you're talking about, you know, a water bottle, they was giving out deodorant and towels and things like that. You can match that. You can give that to the men and the women as well. And for me, it's, it, like I said, it hits close to home because I know when I made an NCAA championship, we got a, a water bottle and a towel. 
and I think a paperweight. And that was it. And that yeah. was it. And so, you know, I can't, I'm not, I, I, I have sympathy, but at the same time, I'm like, you come live a day in our life because that's how it is. I mean, you see the football players, they eat the best, you know, they get the best treatment on campus. They get the best, you know, media coverage. They get the best, you know, uh, what do you get? They get the most amount of followers and things like that, the hype on campus. And so, and like I said, I get it. You know, they're the ones, football's king in America. So, you know, you're playing collegiate football. That's naturally going to happen. But when you're talking about some of those smaller things, it's it's really it's really just like, come on now. It seems yeah. petty. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, and what I've noticed um, recently anyway, from when I went to school, 30, almost 30 years ago, you know, a lot of things, and I wasn't one of those fortunate athletes to get paid under the table. <laughs> but I think a lot of the recruitment was done by that. And it's probably a lot of it still happening, but I think it's being done in any way, many different ways now with more apparel, you know, these state-of-the-art facilities that you go into, locker rooms that are like, you know, with the football teams and the basketball teams, they got their own complexes to where Essentially, other than go home to their dorms or apartments, they never have to leave that other than in the classroom. So I think that's one way that they're incentivizing athletes and recruiting them is through their facilities and through the apparel that they give them. Um, I mean, you got these hundred million dollar facilities that's, you know, ridiculous, uh, better than probably most buildings and facilities in that city or state. <laughs> and know, it's at funny their college campus. And me and you have talked about this over and over and over again. The, the NCAA claims that the reason they won't allow playing or paying players is because of the inequities it may cause, right? Alabama is a huge program. They can afford to pay more people. So it'll make, you know, this wider gap between these programs and then so on and so forth. But once again, it all goes back to how, well, first of all, let me make the point that it's not already equitable. Like you said, you have certain schools that, have these beautiful facilities that Clemson, I think Clemson and Alabama are the two newest facilities in the country. Those two of the teams have been in playoff for the past four years. So that's already an inequity. You have some schools, lower div division ones who don't have, you know, the same, you know, some schools in certain areas that aren't as cool to be in, you know, UC USC, UCLA, even though they haven't, you know, used it to their, much of their advantage, they still suck. But, you know, being in, you know, a metropolitan area like Los Angeles has got to be a recruiting tool. You're in Southern California where there's a lot of talent. So there's already inequities built into our athletics. So you're talking about paying players. I think it, me and you have talked about it. We think it can do the opposite. It can actually take away some of the inequity in that you may get a kid from, I don't know, North Dakota who say, you know what, I, I could go to Alabama and be another guy there maybe and you know what i mean strengthen that already great program or i could go to my hometown north dakota school this isn't 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 as you know big of a name but hey they can pay me a decent amount of money and because i'm kind of a local star i can stay here and then as that works you start to see the market start to value itself and people start to stay in places that you may not have seen them stay before because before it was all even and it was like well i'm just going to go to the place with the best facilities and the best chance to get me noticed Whereas if you start saying, hey, I'm a small school, but we can give you a hundred grand versus, you know, hey, Alabama, because you're just be another five-star guy for them. They'd only give you 25, 30, 50 grand. What are kids going to start to do? Um, yeah, I think it'll probably be twofold. It depends. I think most kids will go for the money, but those who are aspiring to go to the next level and professionally, they'll probably go to the school that has, where they give them a better chance of going pro from the coaching, from the experience, 
you know, a North Dakota, not saying that you can't go pro for North Dakota because kids have done it, but that versus Alabama, you got people who don't even start, <laughs> probably don't even play much, you know, get a shot to play professionally just because they came from Alabama. So um, there's a lot of different factors other than the money that will, you know, make someone, uh, well, make someone's decision, you know, and deciding yeah. on what they want to do. Yeah. So I think me and you kind of are in agreement that money talks, at least in the capitalistic society we live in. And so it, a lot of it times works itself out. But when we're talking about professional sports and in particular men's versus women's sports, I think we've seen a lot of inequities and people and, you know, I think people are fighting for some type of equality. Uh, but I want to get your take because it's interesting. You're talking about uh, you have the WNBA and the NBA where the pay scales are way, way different. And obviously they bring in way different amounts of revenue. So there's an argument to be had there. Another very interesting case though, for me was the United States women's national team, the soccer team versus the men's team. Um, and I don't have specific numbers on it, but I know that the women were more popular, definitely more popular, way better. They were doing better in, you know, national tournaments and stuff like the international uh, play and stuff like that. And so realistically, they were probably bringing in, I don't have specific numbers, but I would say at least comparable, if not more revenue. But once again, the pay scale was not close. Men were making way more than the women. I want to get your take on that and, and what argument there is to be had, if any. Well, not understanding totally what the pay structure is, what the TV contract is versus men and women. So if the men have a larger TV contract, then they'll probably want to get paid more. If it's the same, then it's very hard to argue why they're not being paid equitably. So um, without knowing that, it's hard for me to, you know, determine one way or the other. But I think if all things are equal, yeah, they should get paid the same. But I don't know much about the soccer yeah. and the TV contracts and other revenues uh, sources that are generated, you know, through that sport. Well, let me speak to the NBA versus the WNBA because obviously that's something I follow very closely. The 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 what the women are fighting for in the WNBA, you see a lot of people making jokes online and kind of trying to dismiss the case that they're trying to make that they should they should make a little more money. I don't think these women are saying, "Hey, LeBron makes thirty million dollars; he's the best player in the league." We think our best player in our league should make thirty million dollars, and the scale should work like that, so on and so forth. I don't think they're saying that because at this point they're just not bringing in the same revenue that the NBA is. What they are saying is that they believe that the revenue split, which I'll explain in a little bit, should be more equitable and comparable to what the men are getting. So, what how it works is in the collective bargaining agreements for the NBA and the WNBA, they decide that we're going to split all basketball-related income a certain way. So in the NBA, it's 51-49. 51% of our basketball-related income goes to our owners and, you know, those people that work um, or own the teams and stuff like that. And the other 49% goes to the players. They split that up amongst the, what, 450 players. That's how we get our salary cap because they say, hey, this is how much money you guys can split up. This is the cap. Do what you, know, you got to do. Sign your players to have them in your contract, blah, 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 blah. And so the women are saying that the men are splitting their revenue 51-49 with the owners, um, you know, and the playoff revenue has a different split, but we won't get into that. But the women's split is a lot more, you know, in favor of the owners. I believe it's something like 57, 58% to like 32, 31% for the players. 57, 58 for the owners. Where's the other percentage going? Did I not get to 100? Did I miss them? Yeah, you missed it awfully. 
57 and 31. Oh, 57. <laughs> you're no, thinking 67? Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're right. My bad. But right. so that so that basically what I'm saying is that this the the split has been a lot more in favor of the owners uh versus the players, whereas in the NBA it's been pretty even. And so the women are saying that we just want to get a little bit better of a split. That doesn't mean they'll start getting $30 million contracts because they're not bringing in that type of revenue, but they just want to split the revenue a little bit more equitable to, or comparable to what the men are getting. What do you say to that? I agree with that. And then again, it comes down to, is that split so different and so uneven because of the revenue being generated and the owners are looking at it and saying, well, if I don't get this, we won't have a team. Yeah. And so if that's the case, then it's, it's hard to argue against them. If it's that we just want more because we can demand that, then it's, 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 you know, I think the owners can be a little more fair and equitable. What that number is and what that split is, you know, it depend, depends on how much revenue is being generated. And I guess the bigger question is, how do we, or how do those, particularly the women's sports, improve their revenue generation? What are the things that they can do to improve, you know, the viewership, um, the sponsorships, the TV contracts and all those things so that, you know, that demand becomes, you know, even greater and, you know, is justified. You know, not to say that they're not justified now, but you have more of a leg to stand on when you're generating those type of revenues. And that's kind of been, that's kind of the overarching theme of this whole show is that money talks, like I said before. And so whether it be the, you know, men versus women's sports, you know, in NCAA, whether it's football versus track, whatever you bring in is probably you're going to get a little bit more of it. And so I think that's the key for not just women's, you know, basketball, women's soccer, any, any sports you're talking about men versus women, also those pro sports that I don't think get enough recognition. Now, like I said, near and dear to my heart is track and field. I believe they have to do, I believe it's been mismanaged thus far. I don't believe they've done a good enough job marketing the athletes, marketing the stories, marketing meets to where people can actually access the sport. You know, there's no reason when the Olympics come around, the track and field should be the number one, track and field is the number one viewed sport out of all of them. You have basketball, you have um, swimming, diving, all these other gymnastics. You have all of these other sports going on and track and field is the number one sport watched every four years and then the, for the rest of those you know three years no one cares or no one knows about it I think the problem is you can't access it I'm a collegiate track and field athlete I do this all day long I love to watch the sport I don't know the last time I was flipping through the channels and saw a meet on tv I don't know how many athletes I can name because they're not marketed well enough and if I'm this close to the sport imagine it's a casual fan who you know really doesn't have a vested interest in it? They're definitely not going to find it. They're definitely not going to see any of that stuff. What would you do to increase the awareness and marketability of the sport? Well, actually, I got to give a shout out to Paul Doyle um, and the Doyle Management Group. They did this thing these past few months, uh, or if, probably about a month series, where they did four weeks of months or four weeks of meets called the ATL, the American Track League. Um, it was on ESPN. It was actually broadcasted. I believe the numbers were pretty good. You had a world record broken. You had, you know, some, some outstanding performances, some comeback stories. Um, and I think that was really good. I think that was huge for the sport to get on a major network, especially when it was downtime. I believe the, the, the Super Bowl had already happened and uh, basketball was kind of just, you know, getting started. So it wasn't, you know, fully up and running or people weren't as interested, I guess. 
And so I think it hit a good window that, you know, hopefully it got some traction. And I believe it did. I believe it could, like I said, I think marketing the athletes is huge. Why the NBA is gaining so much traction is because the NBA is the best sport in the world at, at marketing its superstars. I mean, you see LeBron James on all types of commercials. If, if there's a primetime game, it's one of their stars. It's LeBron, it's Curry, it's KD, it's Giannis, it's somebody. Um, the NBA is really good at telling their stories. We can tell I, a lot of you can tell me where I could. I bet half the people, you know, watching sports can tell me where LeBron's from, where Steph Curry's from. You can tell me about Steph Curry's, you know, upbringing, LeBron's upbringing. They can tell me where Giannis is from, how he got to the U.S. They understand their stories, and so when they go to watch this guy, they have a bit more of a vested interest. When you turn on a track meet; those are just jerseys moving down a a, a, a track. You know what I mean? And football is created loyalty to their brands, right? You have people who love their teams. They don't necessarily know all the players in the jerseys, but they know they're wearing that star on the helmet for the Dallas Cowboys. And that's a brand that they're loyal to to life. By the way, I hate Cowboys fans. They're the worst. But <laughs> I think that's what you have to create in track and field. And the reason, let me get up before I get off my soapbox, my last little thing I have to say about track and field. I think the thing we have to do is create, once again, loyalty to that. So, I think the reason that the Olympics is so huge is because we have a team, the U.S. versus, you know, China, Germany, Japan, all these other countries in the U.S. We're trying to get the highest medal count. And so that's something that everybody in the U.S. can get behind. You know what I mean? Hey, there's Team USA. I don't necessarily know who that guy is, but I want him to, to win. I want him to be first because I want my country to be represented well, so on and so forth. I think you have to do that in track. You have to create some type of league where there's teams and people can get, you know, vested in it. Hey, this is Team LA, all the Los Angeles athletes. I'm from LA, so hey, I'm a root for Team LA and I want to see those guys do well. Or whether it be the brands getting involved. This is Team Nike, Team Puma, Team Adidas. And for whatever reason, if you just like Nike more, you like Adidas, you like Puma. And so that's where I think the interest is going to come from. And I think you're going to really start to make headway in the sport. Um, if you are a part of track and field and you're listening, bring me on. I have tons of ideas to help us get to where I think we should be. Um, but that's, that's, that's the way I feel about it. And I think you can carry the, some of that over to all other pro sports as we talk about trying to make it a bit more equitable to some of these other sports. Well, let's stay, stay on that with track and field. Since you are in track and field and you're at, you know, a pretty high level of competition, who do you go to and pitch those ideas in terms of the storylines on the track and field superstars and those athletes, as well as the teams? Who is that, who is that entity that you go to and say, here's a plan and you pitch that to? Well, see, that's part of the problem. That's another problem I see is that there is no real entity, right? If you have a problem with football, you go to the NFL and you talk to them about those issues. Same thing with basketball, you go to the NBA or whether it's even World Cup. I guess in track and field, you have IAAF, with his, which is World Athletics, but it's so broad. I mean, you're talking about an entire world. Soccer is a world sport, but they have leagues. You have Premier League. You have, I don't know all the leagues. I don't know. I don't follow soccer like that. But <laughs> track, you have one body trying to govern an entire world of athletes in a sport. And it just seems a bit unorganized at this point and a bit tough to manage. I think we need a, I think we need a real league to try to, to bring all that together. At this point, though, there are some powers at B, I would say, within track and field. Some guys, some people that hold a bit of weight within the sport. The president of the IWF, I don't remember his name right now, but he's obviously a pretty big guy, 
Paul Doyle, who's kind of like a super agent within track and field. He's got a lot of pull and he's, you know, doing a lot, has a lot of influence within the sport. Um, and, and a few people like that, but I don't think it's organized enough to say that there's an entity that you would go to specifically. So then that, therefore, you need to create that. So whoever's out there listening, um, Doyle, <laughs> um, Ice Cube, Master P, anybody <laughs> who's looking to create a track league yeah. and figure out ways to really monetize it, you know, the opportunity is there. Is there anything preventing that from happening, you know, from the uh, IWF, their infrastructure and, you know, how it's governed? Is there anything from printing preventing entities from starting leagues and competitions um, in the world of track and field? Not that I know of. I mean, the IAAF seems to govern all of track and field because they're over the world championships, not the Olympics, but the world championships in the Diamond League. And those are that big, I guess, uh, circuits you have now uh, within track and field that everybody, you know, they're probably giving out the most money. So everybody's trying to do those. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think if you came with a new idea and something different and you were paying enough, you could get the athletes to come. Uh, well, right now, the athletes are doing it and they're not getting paid. Exactly. So we don't, there's not a whole lot of money that's needed. I mean, to be good to work toward inc increasing, you know, the revenue for the, the athletes so that they can concentrate and focus on it full time, like, you know, other professional sports. But, yeah. you know, starting out, most track athletes do it for the love of it. Yeah. Not so much the money because very few are making money at it. Yeah, and, and so I think one of the other barriers at this point has been the broadcast. You have, track and field has kind of been run by I, older people. It's one of those, I guess, traditional sports. And so older people seem to be the ones running it. They have their way that they've done it for the past, however long, and that's just how it's going to be. You know, you had a case where last year at Texas Relays, LSU kid, on the anchor leg of the four by one, he ran down the Houston kid. And after the race, you know, he got into his face a little bit, pounded his chest and he was, you know, talking a little trash. Now me being young and, you know, understanding that, you know, the other sports leagues, NFL, where they fight NBA hockey, they fight, they punch each other in the face. <laughs> NBA, you know, they foul hard and they talk in their jaw jacket. And not only is that not okay, or not only is that okay, sometimes it's embraced and they, take that audio and they they post that and they're creating a little bit of rivalries and they're trying to create drama within the sport whereas when that happened in track what did the announcer say the first thing announced the first thing the announcer said was well there's no place for that in our sport of track and field and it's like dude we need that we need that drama to be built up to where people have a vested interest because for the rest of the season when LSU and uh Houston lined up people were watching they wanted to see if it was going to happen again they wanted to see if somebody was going to fight or something yeah, and we went, need to get Snoop Dogg to do some uh some commentating <laughs> like he did to that boxing. Who was that fighting? It was uh Tyson and Tyson uh, and Roy Jones, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I could see a whole whole nother level. You bring hip hop to the scene, you bring you bring characters and you have a storyline and you build story. up to build those drama. meets and you build up to those uh potential rivalries and competitions. Uh, and then once the time you get to the Olympics, it's crazy. It would be it would be bananas. I think they would be want to have. Well, they do have every two years, right? The World Championships. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's an opportunity. Um, Huge opportunity. Things. It's just a matter of really putting it together and executing. Um, uh, you know, even from the high school level and on up. There's there's some young guys I was watching, and it's a a friend of mine. Um, well, a distant friend. I, I knew her from college. 
Her son is a uh, hurdler. He's, uh, I think, a freshman or sophomore at Upland. He ran a 400 meters in 55.06. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, those are young people who are, you know, have yeah. the potential in the next three to four years, you know, could be at the Olympic level, be at that status if they continue to progress. So those are opportunities. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to, you know, go too deep into the track and field, but I wanted to flesh that out because I think there's some opportunities. And so if Master P, Ice Cube, mm -hmm. anybody else who have an idea about, you know, having a sports league, I think this is a good low startup and an opportunity to really create some really um, dynamic uh, entertainment and sports uh, viewing. So uh, check us out. And I, I think what's important too to note is that not just in track and field, but all the other sports that at this point haven't been gotten their equity in the world and in professional sports scene is that they're, if you put, if you do what I said, create some drama, create the market, it broadcast it correctly, and hopefully build a good enough following on the pro level. I think that has a trickle, trickle down effect into co collegiate sports as well as high school sports and youth sports and so on. The reason basketball is so big, you know, you have high, college basketball is huge, high school basketball is huge, AAU from the time you're five years old. Um, that's all because the NBA has done a great job of, hey, this is, this is something that could change your life. You have too many guys in track and tennis and, you know, swimming and diving that after college can't do it any longer because the economic opportunities just aren't there. Um, and so that's something that I think needs to be changed for that reason, because these sports are not, they're struggling to make it. And I don't think that has to be. And I, I'm closest to track and field, so I see these things up close with track and field. But I think all sports that haven't gotten their just due should, should definitely look at some of those opportunities. Yeah. Well, uh, the good thing about it is that the social media and the decentralization in some respects of some of these leagues and even either former athletes or athletes who are deciding to go in a different direction. Um, like for instance, some of the, you know, top elite athletes, African-American athletes who are choosing to go to some of the HBCUs, which is a definite alternate route than what we traditionally have seen when you have the top recruits. They're usually at the, you know, top-notch schools um, that, you know, are gonna get a lot more exposure and, you know, a lot more resources for them. So it, it's, it's opportunities are there and I, I can see that decentralizing um, and going away from the traditional way of thinking and doing opens up a lot of opportunities and options for things to be done differently and spread the wealth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you talked about the HBCUs and some of these. It's mainly happening on a football and basketball level, but, I mean, there's been tons of track and field athletes and baseball athletes and others that have come from HBCUs. But I think if we make it more of a trend, that's, some, that's another inequity I think needs to be addressed, at least within the NCAA, is these HBCUs. I mean, we're talking about – we don't have these specific numbers, but I think a lot of us can watch the NCAA tournament and we see how many of them dudes out there are black or at least look black. And so imagine if we got a decent amount of talent to a black school and they were in the NCAA tournament. You know, we did a whole show on HBCUs um, and what gaining exposure could mean to our community. Um, the idea of creating some equity in sports, because I don't care if you like sports or not, that's what a lot of kids go to college. You know, you have a ton of kids that go to college for that. You have a ton of kids that enroll in certain colleges because they want to watch good football or good basketball or anything like that. And so 
what that can do to an HBCU would be astronomical. And that's another inequity I think that can definitely be addressed. Yeah, I think uh, largely you definitely would need to invest in the infrastructure of some of those schools. Some of them have the resources and the facilities. Uh, many of them don't, as well as making sure. I mean, like the move that Deion Sanders made. Yeah. You know, where you have top-notch coaching or at least people who can get you the exposure, teach you the game, and you have just as much opportunity to go to the next level as anybody else and to have a good, fun experience while you're at it. So I think the opportunities are, are endless and limitless. It's just a matter of, you know, people taking the time and saying, you know, I, I'm going to pursue this. And I think that's starting to happen. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the next five to 10 years what that looks like, you know, on a grand scale. I mean, because you can probably see I could imagine some of those HBCUs, if this trend continues, will be accepted or asked to join some of the major conferences. Is that a good idea? Is that not a good idea? I don't know. And so it'll be interesting to see how they do that. Um, sort of like the major leagues versus the Negro the Negro League. I knew you were going there. The <laughs> idea of necessarily separate, I guess, separate but equal type of thing um, with the HBC. The HBCUs, I think a lot of them already have their own league, right? Yeah, they do. They have, they, they they have their, their own, own conferences. conferences. Yeah. And so to, to if where, okay, hey, Howard's got top a top-notch basketball team now and they're killing the rest of the HBCUs, do we stick it out and hope that the other HBCUs can get to a level where we're competing? Or, you know, hey, they will they answer the call that the SEC wants you to come, you know, or the ACC or whoever. That'll be an interesting thing. And hopefully we'll cross that bridge and we get to it if some of the HBCUs get up to that level. Um, but my kind of final word on this for the day or for, for the episode is just kind of the reason we're talking about sports is because we played sports. I love sports. I love the business of sports. You know, he played sports. Um, and he understands the game and he understands, but I think we both understand what sports can do um, economically, socially, um, you know what I mean? Politically. Even politically. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we see the power of sports and thus far, I mean, this show, we, we are unapolog unapologetically black. And when we see a lot of the athletes out there, they're black. And we haven't been able to, I guess, you know, besides a few, I guess, that make it out. We haven't been able to leverage our success as athletes and you know generating a lot of revenue for a lot of people leverage that to, to help our own community and i think there is a major opportunity with sports for us to do that and so that's why we're talking about some of the inequities within sports that probably should be addressed and then i think we can go on a grander scale and create so, and help some of the inequities within our society as a whole i would even go on to a deeper level and challenge the AAU coaches, the high school coaches, and even the college coaches to challenge those athletes to be not just great athletes, but better leaders so that they understand, you know, because you got to persevere to be a good athlete. You got to be disciplined. You got to be able to uh, deal with stress, you know, and, and, and anxiety at the high level. When game's on the line, you got to be able to come through and be clutch. All those are leadership skills or, or attributes that can help people in situations that would be um, instrumental. Advent advantageous for life in general, just life. In life in general, but going back into these communities that they come from, I was thinking, and, and here's one of the concepts I have is having those AAU teams, but at the same time, as you have them come in and practicing however many days a week, put an hour or two in there where you have uh, enrichment programs, for instance, whether it be coding, 
whether it be um, understanding the design of games, because most of them play these video games. So all these different things were not only them saying, I'm learning physical traits and, and learning how to be a better athlete, I'm developing skills to put me out into the workforce and to compete in the world in general. Uh, I think those are some of the things I can see being um, advantageous and beneficial if we can apply those. So I challenge the coaches at all levels to, to, to look into not just being athletes, but how do I expand their horizons and create more comprehensive and holistic beings so when they're done, they transition from sports they can transition into something that they're passionate about and they're skilled at and, um, you know, can go out and live a meaningful life. Because I, the challenge I've seen, and I've gone through this and I've said it many times, is making that transition from sport where you're doing something every day and you get that adrenaline rush and you're training and preparing for uh, a competition and then all of a sudden that's gone and you got to try to figure out what do I get that that, that adrenaline rush, where do I get that high from in life? And many people don't make it, you know, they opt out. And, you know, I've seen some of the best athletes on the corners in places that you, that you should never be because they didn't know how to transition from what they were doing to something else that gave them that, uh, uh, gave them that high, gave them that joy and that passion uh, to pursue it. So I'm hoping that those are things that we can begin to institute and implement into the programs so that we're not just training. Like I say, more than an athlete, yeah. we're not just training athletes, we're training and creating, you know, whole beings that can be productive and successful in society and go back into those communities and make the difference and make the changes that are necessary. Mm, I see you got up on your soapbox there for a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, somebody got to do it. Yeah. So, I hey, mean... What? I, th I think, you know, I agree with you on that. And one thing you've always taught me was, you know, play the game, don't let the game play you. And so that's what I've always tried to do. And I think with some of these inequities we discussed, that's something we need to rectify to, to be able to fully realize that statement. Um, so, yeah, man, I think that's that's a wrap for today's episode. And um, as always, we appreciate everybody for listening uh, to this episode and past episodes. And we hope you tune into the future. Have a good one. Peace. All right, that'll wrap up today's episode. Glad we could take a moment to put you up on game. We post a new podcast every Sunday morning. Now you know. Peace. Peace.